And then we just had about four hours of um, closing. Four <laughs> hours. So JR tried to back it down a little bit. I don't know, man. I mean, he went like 45 minutes before lunch. Came back at like long an hour. At least say an hour before lunch. We came back at like 2.20 and went till five, after five, or just around five. I mean, it was close, close to the four than three. Um, and that's where you lose a jury because you don't want to retry the entire case. You just want to powerfully highlight and sum up the strengths. You just bring forth every piece of evidence that ever was presented, they get lost. The powerful points get lost in the less powerful points. And at the end of the day, the jury's just like, well, okay. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I hope, dear God, that John Metters is the final closing tomorrow for the state. I hope Jim Griffin, he's definitely going to be more kind of folksy and conversational. He might have a problem kind of ratcheting up appropriate emotion in the right places. I don't know. Um, he has not been very emotional this trial. He's been, he resonated with, he had a connection with Alex Murdoch. And he probably actually genuinely likes Alex Murdoch. I mean, they've been, I mean, he, Jim Griffin's in at least two of the confession videos from Alex Murdoch. He's down, he was down at Moselle the night of the killing of Paul and Maggie, and we, lest anyone forgets, I mean, he was already representing Paul on the on the felony voting under the influence charges that the Attorney General's office brought on that case. So he he would have been having a relationship with Alex Murdoch before the killings. He would have known the family, but he's he's baked into this case. I mean, he could. He could do a lot with that. If he uses it to his advantage, he could really talk from personal experience. I, you know, he could be doing the I know Alex Murdoch. I mean, he literally could say that. Um, it's not evidence in the case, but it's a, you're allowed to make inferences. And it's been inferred and acknowledged and pointed out by the state that he was their his lawyer. So he can speak, really, because of that evidence in the case, what he knows of that family, his own personal experiences. I've seen Alec rock, you know, when he's thinking hard or he's upset. Um, so that is fascinating because he, Jim Griffin is evidence. And, it's, and to the point about who's doing the closing, it's pretty interesting that really you, you wonder how much Alec Murdoch influenced the decision for Griffin to do the closing instead of Harpootlian. I mean, Harpootlian, this might be the biggest case he does at the tail end of his career. I don't know. He might have some tricks up his sleeve, but he's a guy that likes the limelight. Um, there was some discussion about trying to split the closing that Newman shot down. Yeah, so I mean, he, he raised that legal issue to Judge Newman. You know, he requested it. It wasn't anything subtle. He said, listen, you know, I, I'm asking for the court to consider allowing us to both do the closing. And Judge Newman said, well, I've never done that, I haven't heard of that, and Harpootlian was trying to reference a case that he did as a prosecutor where a defense lawyer was able to convince a judge to allow that, so he clearly wanted to do, have a role in the closing, and you're right, I mean, that decision has been made to hand that over completely to Jim Griffin, and I do feel it's probably to 
have someone connect. You know, I find it very important that the person, the lawyer that is directing a criminal defendant, you're, you've got to have a connection there in front of the jury, or you don't have to, but if you're doing your job right, your, your connection is being made in front of the jury in a way to humanize someone charged with terrible, terrible crimes. And so then if you take that person and you've got that connection on display and then you display it again in closing, you can really reference. And when he told me from that witness stand that he would never kill Paul and he would never kill Maggie, and I, I believe him because I know him. I've known him, since, you know, that kind of thing. He can use that to persuade and empower 12 jury members. Um, so I, as know, long as they think that Griffin is credible. True. As and long. he has resonated relatively well. He's had his faults. I mean, he's been accused of opening the door a couple times. But he has, and I think he is a genuine guy. So, like, you know, Har Harputlian has a strength, and but he can also be pretty tricky and maybe come across as less genuine than Griffin. So if Griffin is gonna vouch for Murdoch based on his past experience, it is a good thing that he does seem genuine. If you guys were closing this case, what would you hit on? What would be your real strong points that you would drive home? We're closing for defense. Defense, <laughs> <assume>. yeah, sorry. <laughs> There's a lot, there's you, a lot. You have to, Again, you have to empower that jury to pull themselves up by their bootstraps out of the sinkhole of despair and unrelated wrongs and crimes to focus just like a laser on the murder case to let them know, hey, he's gonna be held accountable. Don't you worry about him walking free. Um, he, he confessed to financial crimes here because it was so important for him to tell you and look you in the eye and tell you how he feels about his family and tell you how he did the best he could under difficult circumstances. He opened up his soul to you, admitted that he was a junkie, that he was struggling, that he was a thief, that he wasn't, you know, he didn't treat his clients the way he should, but he also looked you in the eye and you could see and feel how much he loved his family. And you do not have to feel good about Alex Murdoch. You do not have to come away from deliberations thinking he's a good man or a good person, but you have to think, and your duty is to think, have they proven beyond a reasonable doubt that he murdered his wife and his youngest son, people that everybody says he loved dearly. And that's, that you wanna squarely put them in there, frame, them, frame that box, and then drop the seeds of reasonable doubt of how he couldn't. It had to be two shooters. He extrapolated from, Mike Sutton extrapolated from SLED data just to tell you an approximation that is way more likely to have a short shooter than Alex Murdoch. Sure, Murdoch could be on his knees. Is that reasonable in this dynamic fight? Um, and continue to try to drop these seeds and, and say, look, this is the best system in, in the entire world. The highest standards beyond a reasonable doubt. Don't lessen it, don't cheapen it. Hold them to their burden and kind of wink, wink, nod, nod, don't you worry, he's not going anywhere. And then you attack the, the theory of the state that his, you know, they really wanted to bootstrap their case by calling it motive to bring in the financial crimes when the way they've used it was more in line of showing that 
he's a bad guy. That's called propensity evidence, and it's not allowed, not permissible under our rules. But the state called it motive, but never really used it in a motive fashion because it made no sense for financial crimes to then kill his family. If he had been pumping up his life insurance policies under Maggie or Paul, that would make sense, but he wasn't. So what you have to do is, is say, listen, he was the sloppiest financial criminal ever. He was leaving you know, double cash checks around. There was no hidden anything. It was just all out, it was just, he was just reckless. He was recklessly lying to clients. There was just so much money that no one really found out about it. And guess what? Until it really uh, came down to the murders of his family when their scrutiny from a law enforcement perspective at least really came bearing down on him. Yes, his, his law firm was becoming aware but the scrutiny of the murders is what brought down the hammer stroke from law enforcement. So what you say is, he can't be the most manipulative, mastermind, high-functioning, double murder committer in a way that is so intelligent, former prosecutor, trial lawyer who can cry and, and lie easily and convincing, um, and then also, you know, manipulate timelines and crime scenes in such a way, you know, even putting the dogs back in the wrong kennel spots to make law enforcement believe somebody else that wasn't familiar with the scene would do that. So doing all these things to hide a, a double murder, but yet being so sloppy on the financial. So that, I would be attacking that as well as reasonable doubt to show the inference that hey, he ain't the one. He ain't the one. Um, is what I'd be doing along with what my brother said. And people are mentioning the rumors of like uh, the cartel. And I know that we floated the Ozark theory actually here for the first time. Do you want to give like a little refresh about your theory with that? Because I know that people are wondering. It just doesn't make sense. We, this was around the time when everybody was wondering whether cousin Eddie Smith was going to testify seemed like he probably would and it seemed like he didn't but just once the financials came out and you saw that he had five hundred thousand dollars of payments to cousin eddie smith and that we you were healing we were in real time getting all the the heavy hammer blows of the financial crimes we're thinking well how does he get out of this he's a proven liar but that money doesn't make sense for drugs what is really going on with all that money? And it was also around, I mean, Jim Griffin began cross-examining a lead investigator on whether he was aware that Cousin Eddie was getting his drugs um, to provide to Murdoch from a local gang. And he basically said yes. And he was asking him if he was aware that Cousin Eddie was in over his head to this local gang. And he basically didn't deny it. We started kind of probing there. And so we're like, okay. <laughs> If it's not Alex Murdoch, okay, but he's down there right before, and who could have this credible reason to send him a message? I mean, someone who the whole world think is like the son of prominence, fourth generation prosecutor, the biggest law firm in the state, driving around with badges and blue lights on your car. They're going to see him as a whale, as a mark. I mean, it. You can see from the, the highly entertaining and well-watched show Ozark, you start getting it over your head, you, they get leverage on you because they're selling you drugs, and they say, all right, you're gonna wash our money. You're going, you got ties with law enforcement, you're gonna 
tell them to look the other way when we bring our big shipment of heroin through the low country. You can do that. We know you can. And if you start, as Murdoch is doing, already having years of kind of living too above his means, I mean, who knows how long you might have been in with this element, but if, if it doesn't start working or you get behind on what that serious criminal element is trying to have you do, you start panicking. They want to send you a message. There would be no point to kill him because he can't continue to wash your money or have the cops cover up, you know, and, and look the other way when you're bringing in your drugs. So they may be watching you, surveilling you, see him leave, and then destroy his family to send that point that you will never cross us again. To me, that, when we dropped that theory, it was really the only type of theory that could play out that he could reveal that no one else could reveal. Well, at the time we felt that he was gonna have to testify, and we were right about that. We were saying that from the beginning. Um, and if we were representing him, we would be telling him the same thing. You're gonna have to explain your lies, explain everything, to, on the one hand, gain credibility back with the jury because you're a liar, you're a financial criminal. Hold your hand up on that in front of this jury. And then, let's talk about what happened. If you're not the shooter, you're gonna expound upon what's going on. So what he's done is kind of half Ozark. He's basically said, well, of course it's not me, but I think you know somebody with hate in their heart right from the someone that's been whipped up by the media regarding the boat accident you know someone that was already evil and kind of latched on to to mistruths and media speculation came and did this thing to my family now i don't i don't think that's the truth i don't i think he knows more but i think that was the sanitized version of our ozark theory that alex murdoch chose to use in his testimony. I, I don't think he's the shooter, but I don't, I don't think he was truthful about his true beliefs on who killed his family. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I, I have a hard time believing that Alex Murdoch alone even was the shooter. I do believe that he knows what happened, and I don't believe that it is whatever this boat drama I don't, I don't believe it has anything to do with that. I believe he sees that that was like, like an easy cover. Um, for something deeper maybe you know maybe bringing in his financial stress whatever have you i believe that he knows who did it but he may have not done it himself that's just kind of where i'm at now my hunch would be that he was living a lifestyle over his means and he got tied in let's say with cousin eddie due to the opioid addiction and cousin eddie would have connections to a criminal element in the low country that would be moving large amounts of drugs and I probably and this is all speculative probably through the relationship with cousin Eddie cousin Eddie would have proposed a way to make a large large scale amount of money if Alex Murdoch could put down a chunk of change to purchase narcotics to then make an investment on that return and then somewhere in that business transaction they got sideways with a major criminal element. That would that would be my, like, really get deep on this case. Well, if we were his lawyers, we would have tried to delve into that into a credible way and see where that went. See if he could produce the receipts. Because then it's almost, then it explains. You're owning up to being a bad guy, but you didn't kill. And it might even explain why someone was keeping tabs on you, watching you, waiting for the moment where you just left your family so they could ambush them and say look get 
get on the right track, buddy. Otherwise, we know you've got one son left. I mean, just, it would have to be something like that, I think, for him to truly have a chance of walking. And if you're trying to really kill yourself, and it's not a guilty conscience for killing your family, if you're really trying to end your life because your financial crimes have been revealed due to, in part, to the scrutiny from the murders, but you're in of your head, and you're worried about you know, threats on your on Buster or other family members and you know that this criminal element is targeting you and you end your life to hopefully release that pressure valve and also there's a sizable amount of money for Buster to receive on the end of a life insurance policy. That tracks for me. Um, that that makes sense. Um, and if he's you know if he truly is part of the problem because let's say hypothetically he's done this transaction with cousin Eddie and it's gone way south and he feels guilty because he knows that that's the reason that his family's dead then uh, he ends his shame he ends his misery he ends his heartache at the, at the killing of his family and he also ends a problem for any kind of major criminal element to have to worry about and hopefully the rest of his family is safe I mean I, that all tracks to me it does not you know I agree with Creighton Waters the sensationalized aspect of the boat accident for whatever it is. I mean, that may be true, but that's not gonna, I don't think that's gonna um, motivate someone, you know, on the periphery of that situation, hearing things in social media and like activate them. I don't think, I think that's unrealistic. And I think, yeah. I think Creighton Waters and John Metters will be talking about that, how unrealistic that is. And Creighton talked about it today and I'm, and I'm sure John Metters will be talking about it as well. And I also think on that point, that reminds me of what Creighton said, that he was essentially, it was a pressure valve. It was too much. He was in debt, but when, when the law firm confronted him that day about missing money, you know, he acts like that was the moment he decided, well, I'm going to put forth this motion, my plan to kill my family to detract. But also that day, his dad went in the hospital. And so I would say someone of that amount of prominence, whose father, who's even more prominent, is in the hospital and you have a hearing, let's say on Wednesday, I think it was, or Thursday of that week, that would that alone would get you out of that motion of appeal if you're dealing with your dad. And it turns out that his dad died the same day that hearing was supposed to occur, the motion of appeal. So did you need to blow away both of them just to get out of that? No, I think you had enough of a personal reason where if you called up that judge and said, my dad is in the hospital, oh, handsome, Handsome is in the hospital. I'm gonna be by his side. I just we gotta. I can't do this hearing this week. You would have gotten out of that by the, just on, on a loan. And again, it, it doesn't make sense to say to me why kill both. Killing Paul while traipsing around the fields, if that was your plan, was to diminish the boat case and to detract through sheer sympathy. Stage some kind of accident out there while checking the feeders. You don't need to kill your loving wife who has been by your side even through your opioid addiction, who has financial means through her property. Because remember, he he had a hard time getting loans after the fact because all of her property and collateral, which was the bulk of it, was tied up in probate. So he couldn't just reach out and get another loan against you know Moselle because it was in her name. So 
that doesn't really jive with the theory because it actually frustrated his attempts to get loans. And of course you have the international microscope of his butt, which ultimately discovered all of these things through the killing. So why kill two? I mean, under that theory, why didn't you lure Buster down and kill all three? I mean, it just doesn't exactly make sense on the motive theory. It never really has. And I'd be hammering that if I'm Jim Griffin tomorrow. Uh, what doors do you think this case has opened in terms of like future criminal charges against Alec Murdoch? And what would that look like moving forward? I, I don't think any new doors are open. I think um, he's got 90-some pending charges, state and federal, all financial, other than this contraband charge he got this week for having a book, a book passed to him, a John Grisham book by his son. Yeah. But I think it just it nailed all those doors shut. I mean, everything will live or die based on this murder conviction. I mean, what, what was ensured during this trial? If for some reason that, that there's a hung jury or remarkably an acquittal, he will very quickly get prosecuted on the financial crimes and it'll be a guilty plea. And his lawyers will try to say, listen, he owns up to that, you know, but for the, the murder charge subsequently, he would have already pled guilty to all that. You know, he had to, you know, assert his right to remain silent once the murder charge came. Um, but he'll, he'll be in a position where they'll either call it to trial or they'll be scheduling a guilty plea. And you're gonna have that same kind of intense pressure. You'll have however many victims, all the victims in that case. And he'll just be trying to say, listen, I did the best I could do to, to come clean on all that because I even came clean in the middle of my murder trial. So if somehow he's not found guilty in the murders, he's going to go down on the financials. He's going to go down hard. I would bet, you know, even with credit for coming clean, that he'd be trying to figure, I mean, I don't know how he would address restitution that would help him somehow, but he's going to get 20 years plus on the financials. Um, which will effectively be you know, 20 to 30 years that a life sentence for him. And then they'll, they'll circle back on the, on the murder case. Um, the way the attorney general's office has tried this case so extensively, I don't see how they just, I mean, it's never going to be a plea. It has, the only way it could be a plea is if it was somehow negotiated under a legal theory called there's a case called North Carolina versus Offer. So let's say he gets 30 years in the financial crimes, but he's never gonna admit to killing Paul and Maggie. And the, and the Attorney General's office says, all right, let's do this again. Let's tee it up in three months. Let's all retool, and let's pick a jury, and let's do that again. You know, instead of that, he could say, well, I've got 30 years, I know I'm guilty on that, I will take a plea deal under North Carolina versus Alford, which is where you have to be getting a benefit for the bargain. So let's say, you know, no more, you know, 30 years negotiated by the state. He'll get 30 years on the, but he's got to plead to two counts of murder. Murder carries 30 life. And then Alex Murdoch, knowing that he's damned on the financials and he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison on those, could say under Alford, because I'm getting a benefit, I can resolve my guilty plea without having to admit guilt on the record. And that, that is a, a legal kind of nuance where you can do a plea under Alford. A lot of prosecutors don't like it, a lot of judges don't like it, but that would be 
a legal avenue to not have to admit guilt on the record, but still getting a guilty conviction on two counts of murder if he got lit up on the financials, which I'm, I'm sure he will. But he may never want to even do it like that. He may want to run the gauntlet if somehow he, he's not found guilty. But that's something we haven't talked about. Do you think, though, with like the Netflix documentary that came out, the HBO special, you know, all of these ties, do you think we're going to hear anything more about Gloria Satterfield or Stephen Smith? Anything potentially that either Alec or Buster could be charged with? in relation with their murders, or deaths. I mean, I think if there's some amazing investigative journalism that uncovers something to charge, well, sure. I mean, no one's going to hold back on charging him if they could prove it. And just for the viewers that are outside of South Carolina, nationally and internationally, there's no statute of limitations on criminal charges at the state level in South Carolina. So he could be serving the 30th year of a 30-year sentence, and let's say if he confessed to another inmate about knowledge about something related to those crimes, um, the state could come back and prosecute him on them. There's no statute of limitations in state court in South Carolina on criminal matters. And he's going to have a bunch of restitution assigned to him on these financial crimes. So, you know, the law firm has shelled out out of their own pockets to make these victims whole. So they're a huge victim themselves, a, a debtor basically, but everything I've heard is that Alex Murdoch, uh, things are in the process of being sold, you know, anything, anything that he outright owns that isn't, you know, attributed to Maggie's estate, you know, what's going to go to Buster, I mean, he's going to be stripped of everything he has available to pay back restitution, so... Sometimes you get in a scenario where he doesn't have that money, it's all gone to other family members, and you know he has an opportunity to make money off his rights, so to speak, whether it's a, a book deal or a movie deal or an exclusive interview from jail about why he thinks he's innocent. And But a lot of times the government will try to take that money too. Yeah. <laughs> and so that'll be interesting how that plays out. Um, the feds really love doing that. <laughs> will seize your, and he does have federal charges. They will, they will like to seize your assets. Um, so, but there's so much attention on this. There, there will be avenues for him to make money. The question is whether he ever sees a dime of that, or does it go to? I mean, rightfully financial victims for sure. Um, so, if he is found not guilty, would he walk free, go home? No, no. Okay, talk us through what that would look like. Yeah, he's got. Um, bond denied across the board. I mean, on the financials, on the murder. I mean, well, does he have the financials? I know he does on the murder. He but got once he had the attempted suicide. I'm pretty sure he got his bond revoked, and um, then and then more financial crimes that piled on. The murder came after that, right? So I think he has bond denied on murder. So let's say he was acquitted on that. You don't have a bond to deal with on that, but he's got. Judge Newman revoked his original bond on financials by saying he's a danger to himself, he's a danger to the community. And I don't think, there's no judge that's gonna go out on a political limb and say, okay, you can you can walk free now. Um, he will stay there. He, well, he'll get remanded back to the Alvin S. Glenn Detention Center, which is where he's been living this entire time. Except for the trial week where he's been down in, in college. Right, 
Um, and yeah, sure, if, if he had this great acquittal, I'm sure uh, Mr. Griffin and Mr. Harpooley at some point would file a motion trying to seek for various reasons, you know, due to that change in circumstance, you know, the acquittal on the, on the most serious charges that he needs to assist them, work from the comfort of his home, or, you know, but I, well, I can't imagine a judge letting him out. That's when Craig Waters calls the financial charges to trial, and then Alex Murdoch is forced to plead. Right. And, then, and then he goes to the South Carolina Department of Corrections. And so there would be no, he's not getting out. He, he will never be a free man again, even if he one day is acquitted on the murders, which seems unlikely at this point. I mean, I, you know, as criminal defense lawyers, we see tons of reasonable doubt in this case, but there's also a lot of things that come in that are gonna really shape this case. You know, the financials, the suicide information, the drug use. I mean, things things that jurors just can't forget and Creighton Waters won't let them. Um, so he will never walk as a free man ever again. It's just a matter of, does he get to be in prison as a annihilator of his family, a convicted annihilator of his family, or someone that was able to navigate that particular set of charges, but yet he he did wrong, and he's gonna do lots of time on the financial crimes. And you know, if you're sitting in his shoes, you're thinking, you know, I think he said he was like 500 something days clean and sober. You know, he's going through all the steps. He's holding his hands up about being guilty on the financials. He did them wrong, but he'll he'll never admit to being a killer of his family. I imagine so. It's all about how he spends the rest of his days in the Department of Corrections as either a financial criminal or a family annihilator and a financial criminal. Well, how old is he? Mid-50s? 54, I believe. How old is Alec Murdoch? I'm sure somebody here knows. <laughs> My, I think I'm right that he's 54, but I could just be, you know, if could be wrong. If this was not a murder he's case 54. and we just had an enormous amount of white-collar theft and really sympathetic theft from people you were had a fiduciary duty to represent. I could see a guy like him getting, you know, blaming the drug addiction and probably getting something like 10 years plus full restitution. And, you know, he would say, well, the only way I can pay them back is by working. Well, um, he would be disbarred. Well, he would be disbarred, but, like, you know, he could still make that claim and whatever work you do, get in the family business, sell tractors, whatever. So, but... You think John Marvin would take him? Well, <laughs> he, he, he would be set up to do something to earn a living. And then that's how that normally would go. So you wouldn't normally expect to see 20, 30 years hung over his head just purely on financials in state court, typically. Um, especially with someone with no record and but because even if, so that's that's the thing that I'm pretty sure Judge Newman has retained jurisdiction on all of it. So that's the kind of thing that Judge Newman will have his own opinions on it, regardless of the acquittal, if that were to happen, and probably it would be heftier than you would certainly see with just straight up isolated financial crimes, even of that value. So speaking of financials, how is Alec Murdoch paying for his defense? 
Well, I think early on, before the murder charges, and I think, I don't know how Dick and Jim do it, but they clearly were trying to set a fee. I mean, he's not, he's got people, and I don't know how much relatives ponied up, but anything that's not seized, well, right around the time of the murders, when, he, when they were already representing Paul on the boat case, that, that felony voting under the influence charge, you know, they swooped in because they were already there and they were, you know, representing him early on, you know, Jim Griffin's and all these videos, you know, they were having a lot of press conferences on national news. I, I remember Dick Carpullian said, saying he's an opioid addict. He's broke. He's broke. He's broke. He's broke. So a lot of different ways to get paid. I mean, and I know they sold off a lot of assets. Um, I know that there was a, a freeze on his assets, and, I, and I, I know at some point there was a special hearing to pay for all these experts, and I think Judge Newman basically allowed a lot of these assets to be released. I mean, assets are going everywhere. They're, they're doing the best to pay back victims, but I do remember hearing about some legal expert fees being allocated off of the sale of some property they had, and that was being authorized. But how else um, they're being paid? I mean, there's going to be, for better or worse, there's going to be all kinds of book deals and movie rights and all kinds of stuff, interviews. And I mean, it's just, I mean, I am aware that Dick Carpotlian one time took an indigent murder defendant um, fee for $1 just to... Stick it to the man. Stick it to the man and to get into a courtroom with a prosecutor that he was kind of sideways with. Um, and that's been verified. So, I, you know, Dick's had a really lucrative career. He likes to be interested in cases that, you know, are relevant, that keep, you know, keep, he likes to be in the action. So I have no idea what the financials are, but like certainly there's money to be made. And of course, the, it's, a, it's going to be one of these cases that's going to go down. I mean, they will be teaching this case in law school, probably regarding appellate issues. But it'll be kind of like the OJ case. You know, you, you know the names, you know Johnny Cochran. I mean, it's going to be one of those cases. It's going to be a, a, a decade kind of, you know, reference point case that, you know, people will be talking about for many years. So that could possibly be what what is motivating the lawyers other than just being, you know, working for a client they already were representing. Sorry, we're having no, some no, conversation. Um, does Judge Newman have any authority to, like, restrict or shut down Hollywood, for example? Books, movies, any information, anything like that? No, courts can't shut down the, the interest of the world and First Amendment rights to talk and, you know, and be paid for your likeness and all that. But once you receive that money, if you're under judgments to pay victims, and you see this all the time in federal court, kind of like when the IRS might garnish your wages if you're behind on your taxes. I mean, if there's money attributable to Murdoch um, and he's got a big judgment and let's say has pled to all these financial crimes and owes you know, his old law firm or Tony Satterfield, let's just call it $2 million or whatever it is, 
he might get $2 million in his bank account, but restitution will be ordered through, you know, to go to the, to the victim. So now if he ends up making $10 million and all the victims have been paid and he's just like, well, that's a lot of honey you buns. can't take my money. I'm, I'm <laughs> going to, I'm going to profit off this story because the world is interested in my, you know, there was, uh, I think Mr. Uh, the death penalty case with uh, Mr. Culpep out of Spartanburg, who was accused of shooting lots of folks, and he had the woman tied up in his, his bunker. Know, in his, his bunker, right. and a trailer on his land. He had a huge amount of restitution to pay. And I, I heard when he was like from prison sending, you know, he would like trace his hand or something and sell it on eBay. Right, and right. And someone caught one of that and said, oh, you can't do that because you got to pay your victims first. You got these judgments right. and they, and they shut it down. So he'll have opportunity to make a lot of money based on this story, but the victims will be paid mm-hmm. through it, you know, first and foremost. Speaking of Judge Newman, you all have a lot of experience um, with him. Some viewers want to know, you know, he seems pretty strict with what he allows. Um, and sometimes maybe seems like he is short on patience. Can you guys just maybe tell the viewers a little bit about your experience personally with Judge Newman? (laughs) I'll let you start, Luke. Lots of stories. He's got, he is strict. He expects a lot from the, the lawyers. He doesn't, as you've noticed, he doesn't like to make rulings in advance. He likes to typically have them play out and then decide in the moment. He he doesn't want to hear a lot of hemming and hawing. You're not going to talk him out of something once he's decided. A lot of lawyers will go before some judges and think they can just keep yammering at that judge and eventually he will cave. Judge Newman is not going to do that. Um, well, he does follow the law to the best of his abilities. Right. I mean, he's he normally is, is the type of judge that doesn't need to research the law. He knows it because he's, he's very experienced. He also has a pretty good legal acumen. I mean, in court this week, he was, um, uh, Jim Griffin was making an argument. I can't remember what it was. He was citing a case and Judge Newman said, well, that was my case. Um, and I, it came back on appeal and then I was um, uh, reversed by the Court of Appeals and, th- and then the Supreme Court reversed the Court of Appeals. So he was like right with it. You know, he, He's got a really good recall. I will disagree a little bit, Luke. I mean, he will, and we, with our recent experiences, he will, he's firm in his beliefs, but if you, especially if he has time to read something, I mean, he does like things briefed in advance, or if you make an argument towards the end of the day, he'll say, give me the case law, and I will read it overnight, and I'll come back, and I'll let you know my thoughts on it. And so he, he, he is persuaded with, you know, good, good lawyering, good uh, research in case law. Right, not just like yelling at him. And oh, no, no, no. Some, He's not, some less experienced judges might change their mind just simply because someone won't stop talking. He will never do that. Um, he, he once had a pretty high-profile murder case. I won't say any names because it's still pending litigation, but where the credible evidence from our perspective uh, seemed to indicate that a police officer could likely be a suspect and that was high drama when we decided to put forth that evidence it was unusual it was not taken very well but that's where the evidence led us and after that hearing after the trial the judge did want to have a hearing to see if we you know were in our 
following our ethical obligations, let's just say. <laughs> and he gave us a little bit of a hard time, but once he really fleshed out how we got to that point, he said, okay, I'm, I'm satisfied with that. So that was a little scary moment. He can be intimidating, but it is typically just and fair. He, you know, he has a saying that this, um, the state never rests and the defense is always ready. So he likes well-prepared defense lawyers. I mean, he may, he may not, he may act like, you know, maybe slightly intolerant of some of these motions and things, but he really does like aggressive lawyering by defense lawyers and he likes really thorough prosecutors. Um, so, you know, but he is, you know, a looming presence in any courtroom. So he's really experienced. Um, he's going to be coming up on retirement pretty soon. So he'll, he'll be a loss, uh, on the bench in the state of South Carolina and someone's going to have to try to step up and fill his shoes. They are big. Now that we are finally to closing, why don't each of you, um, kind of share some of your favorite witnesses that have uh, been on the stand for this case? Uh, well, <laughs> for the state, I really like the, uh, the dog kennel guy. <laughs> Mr. Davis, I think his name was. Just not that he was, was he the, the folksy, uh, he was a folksy guy. Folksy he was like, I mean, there's certain ways to go <laughs> pig hunting, and you ain't gonna go out unless you want to go grab him in there by your, your hands and pull him out. I mean, so he was just, I found him just straight up country, honest. Who would play him in the in the movie? <laughs> let's do that. Let's uh, let's name some witnesses and see and see who who did play, play that guy in a movie. Yeah, I mean, I think almost like Billy Bob Thornton could play that guy. I mean, that guy was way large, and Billy Bob's not. But like, I mean, you could have all kinds of characters play that guy, but. It, that, I don't think that guy's gonna have a really big important part in closing though. The water yeah, hose. She asked huge. who she asked who the favorite <laughs> witness was, and just from a personal level. And I, I did get lost a little bit in the almost four hour closing by Creighton. And I had to jump up a couple times and do some lawyer work. Did he really harp on the blue raincoat all that much in closing? I don't think I heard it mentioned. Who? Creighton. Today? Did yeah. we talk about the blue raincoat? I didn't hear much about the blue raincoat. Maybe, which uh, honestly seems like an injustice to everyone that's watched this. I, I mean, feel like that should have been. I mean, that, I mean, I kind of glazed over, but I don't think he did. As much as we spent like a day on the blue raincoat and yeah, the GSR in it. Oh, I, I said that he did mention it. But but he that was like it wasn't a lot, but it was mentioned. that was two days or that was a actually yeah. like a week of witness and examination from where it came from and. And poor Shelly Smith having to talk about it and then be cross-examined about it. And, like, and, and, you know, the, I think it got so blown out of the water that I think that he spent most of his time saying, well, there was this time when he could have gotten rid of evidence while outside at, at Almeida. And he kind of was more wanting to highlight that time frame and the structures around Almeida where that could have occurred than the whole, he took them inside in this blue raincoat at some point. Like, for the defense, I would say... <laughs> Someone just said, I'm sorry. Yeah. Someone said, I was playing a drinking game today, and every time Creighton Waters said liar, took a drink. I can't feel my face. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Oh, man. I was just thinking about your question about who's the favorite 
witness and who would you want to be focusing on in closing, I would talk a lot about John Marvin. I mean, he did a couple things. He made this crime, you know, he cleaned up Paul. And so not only was he a likable, credible witness, he didn't have any of the baggage of his brother, but he's doing something in a way, and he, and he kind of vowed to find a killer of Paul and Maggie. And you know, that, that kind of setup allowed him to say, you know, Jim Griffin said, have you found this killer? No, I haven't to this day. But he also really, I know Jim Griffin's gonna be talking about the sloppy investigation from SLED. And John Marvin kind of personifies that because you, know, you had the example with Maggie's phone and he was able to, through the Find My Friends app, figure out where it was and ask SLED, do you want to go get this thing? I, I can see where it's up the road before the battery dies on it. And they said, no, we're not, we'll do that our own way. And then he and the Duffy Stone, the local solicitor, went and got it, went and identified it. So he's a great person to humanize his brother. He was there taking him to rehab. He, he kind of is coming to grips with his brother's flaws while simultaneously talking about how terrible the sled investigation was and his belief that his brother didn't do it. And he was an incredibly powerful witness and that's why they ended, what, he was one of their closing witnesses. I don't know if he was the last one, but he could have been, but I, I think I'd be talking about him a lot in closing. I'm thinking my favorite for the defense is probably Mike Sutton because math doesn't lie, math is not biased. And he literally used SLED's math on angle and trajectory and just pulled it all the way out into about the location of where a shooter would have been regarding Maggie and showed us through measurements how anybody in a reasonable shooting stance, how tall would they have been? Yeah, I mean, they're, you can tell how much the state feels it's a threat to them by how much they make fun of it or try to talk about it and sure there's variables but you know you're talking about natural shooting positions for a, what they would say is a dynamic case where Maggie is running moving the shooters running moving they're like well he could have been on his knees well if you're on your knees you're not running and moving very well you're not going like this so but if you're six four you're either pulling your rifle like that, or it might be kind of in a less focused way on your, at a lower position, but, and if you, a lot of people said, well, he did, he shot him from the golf cart. Okay, what do you do? Shoot, I mean, the, the shotgun was not shot from a golf cart. The, the kill shot, the, you know, according to the state's theory, the butt of that gun will be in the floor. So what do you do? Then hop on his golf cart, turn the wheel, drive over to Maggie and start shooting with his his Blackout 300? No, no, that's not what happened. So I like things that aren't biased. We all have bias. We all have implicit bias. Some of us have the express bias. We're all looking to feed into what we already think happened. Mm -hmm. But math and science do not have those things. So anything that involves math and science, I mean, that's, that's something that just can't be messed with. Even the pathologists who are using scientific methods to determine cause of death and let's say a path of a bullet in a body seem very much subject to interpretation. 
but physics doesn't have that. You literally take a line that SLED says was the line, and then you move it out to where the shooter would have been. Why didn't why wasn't SLED interested that in that in the first place? I don't know. They would have had a much stronger position had they done that in the first place. And we've had cases against SLED where they use that kind of technology, that that uh, graphic that Sutton used and reconstructed based on you know the lines and like the laser imaging. We've seen cases like that. Yeah, yeah. We have cases right now pending with SLED where they've reconstructed well, crimes used it like that. In this case, they just didn't extrapolate it out. Right. And I liked how Sutton was able to extrapolate it out to the position centrally around the shell casings where the action was. And he said with a 12 foot radius, not saying precisely the shooter was here or there, but let's just put it in a reasonable area. And then what are the distances of those trajectories based on sleds and measurements? And how could that, if it's this high, well, how can, how can a person with say Murdoch's height reasonably hold that firearm in that point? Very interesting. So it just doesn't have any bias to it. There's no wiggle room. So I appreciate a witness like that. It, I think if I'm a juror and you see so much bias from caretakers, whether it's night shift or day shift, <laughs> whether team, it's... Yeah, drop a comment. Are you team uh, AM or team PM? Uh, I mean, how was, that, how was that housekeeper handoff? Yeah, that had to be uh, fireworks. If you guys don't know what we're talking about, the state called the PM housekeeper, caregiver. Right, Miss Shelley. And then yeah. the defense called AM Miss Mixon. <laughs> And they had two different stories. 100%. There was no raincoat <laughs> permis mixing, no blue nothing, no tarp laid out, and they both love that family dearly. So, very interesting there, but... <clears throat> um, some people are wanting to know, in your experience with SLED and like crime scene investigation, where's the bar set? Obviously, we have a lot of great respect for law enforcement. Um, do you think that it is oftentimes uh, lacking? <laughs> or <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> okay. I mean, especially in complex crime scenes, there's always something that could have been done better. Mm. Um, sometimes law enforcement does great, but in this crime scene, I think objectively, we've heard about you know shoe prints that could have been preserved better we've heard about without any kind of real pushback we've heard about maggie's phone was not secured properly by sled and the gps data was allowed to be it just was deleted because it wasn't secured properly we've seen we've heard about uh bullets and and fragments uh pellets being pulled out of windowsills and door frames that sled missed that could you know bring a new light to the shooting trajectory we've heard about you know, not asking for clothes that maybe they should have been asking for. Um, I mean, there's been a lot. We don't have, and not that they always have to, a duty and obligation to find a murder weapon before they can prosecute, but we don't have any weapons in this case. And there's been some jokes on the internet, on Twitter mostly today, about how, man, being a jury in South Carolina is tough. You got to 
walk out in the hog country and, and maybe find some rifles or two while you're out there. I mean, it's like, you just don't know. So I, I don't think SLED covered themselves in glory during this case. I think there's a lot that could have been handled better. The biggest thing for me, though, is Maggie's phone. I mean, just not preserving that in a way, in a basic manner. Um, to, to figure out her GPS that I did with Paul, it's pretty troublesome um, for me. Luke, I mean, you can't expect perfection. I mean, obviously a defense lawyer will always try to nitpick things that aren't done. But when there's glaring errors, you can expect competence. And so here it was very clear that Alex Murdoch got an initial benefit of the doubt, at least in the way they searched the property or lack thereof, Almeida, things like that, just kind of from who he was. They didn't, they didn't kick everybody out of the house and scour his home immediately. They never properly searched Almeida until way later once this kind of blue raincoat tarp evidence came up. I mean, they, and that was just due to a general deference. So you don't, you won't sled or really any head law enforcement agency to put that aside. I mean, we once had a, a cop shooting case where sled, you know, by law really has to investigate because cops can't investigate themselves, whether they shot or were shot at in a way um, that was appropriate or not. So, but sled gave this particular officer a lot of deference and really didn't question him too hard. And, you know, he told him, like, well, I shot three times. And then you look at the shell casings, and there's four shell casings on the ground. But when he, he also gave him his magazine, and it was, it, it was very clear that if his magazine was full, he had shot closer to, like, six, seven times. And he said it was his practice always to keep his magazine full. And so they never said, well, where's the rest of those shell casings? And turned out... They were in his car because he was doing a drive-by shooting on our client rather than investigating him he shot first <laughs> and so our client shot back and so sled didn't really properly critique and analyze that and whether the assertion that our client shot first or the cop what was based more on the math the facts that don't lie um and that was the fact that his casings were ejecting into his own car as he was doing a drive-by shooting and then sled let him drive his car later to be examined and processed they didn't secure that vehicle and so it's no wonder that those shell casings were never found and of course we got not guilty on that because we we're able to show that he shot first so but what if sled had had treated him like anybody else in a shootout and not giving him the deference of his story or giving him the deference to drive his own car to have it processed. I mean, they yeah, they didn't even process the inside of his car and look for shell casings. They just believed him when he said the shot count. So that's how much deference he got at the time. So, you know. So you, you can't realistically expect perfection, but you don't want huge holes. Um... So that's a long way away. Hopefully it answers your question. But there are, you know, lots of good law enforcement that do a very fine job. And, you know, a lot of scenes are not this complex. And it is maybe a matter of just collecting the showcasings and making sure no one tramples over them. Um, and finding the gun and comparing it and seeing what, what happens. But this is this was a way more complex scene. 
Um, let's talk about David Owen and he lied to the grand jury about blood on Alec Murdoch's shirt, correct? Yes. Okay, let's talk about that and what what are the repercussions of that? I think that goes along with uh, Jim Griffin will be saying how how sloppy Sled was, but not only sloppy sloppy, but reckless and deceitful. Not only in just not only in the evidence in the case, but how they even got charges through the state grand jury. And so, I mean, at the point in time, David Owens would have known that there was not blood on that shirt. And he, you know, in his testimony, if I recall, he was like, well, that was like kind of outside of my purview. But when you're a lead investigator for a double murder case, the buck stops with you. And so having testimony before the grand jury of a bloody shirt, of course you're gonna, along with other lies that we've heard about throughout these weeks of the trial, but like a bloody shirt plus the lies and, and you know, financial motivations, of course you're gonna get a murder warrant. Um, but yeah, that was big for me because you're either lying then or you're lying now. And if you're lying, willing to lie to the grand jury under oath, you know, the inference is that you're willing to lie to the jury here. And he, he kind of evaded that. Well, that wasn't the only lie he told the grand jury. And, and he was able to get away with that by claiming I wasn't sure exactly when the scientific conclusion came out that there was no blood on, on Mr. Murdoch's shirt. He could kind of play dumb, but what he couldn't play dumb on was he was confronted by Jim Griffin with his interview with Alex Murdoch when he came in with his lawyer to kind of under the guise of, well, I mean, what's going on with the investigation? And then he got, he got interrogated. You know, Owen said, well, look, we know that the, the shotgun that killed Paul had a, you know, a, a certain type of buckshot and then a turkey load of steel shots. And that's kind of unusual. And so he confronted Murdoch and said, look, we found numerous guns that are loaded just like that around your property. And that was a lie. It was a, a trick, and on cross-examination, he said, yeah, I lied, but I'm allowed to do that. And yes, there are, there's case law that says investigators investigating a case can lie to a suspect to see if they can get him to admit to something based on that lie. Well, you're not allowed to lie to a grand jury or any jury. And so he took that same kind of bit of lie, and he literally said that same thing to the grand jury per the transcript and said, we found other shotguns on that property that were loaded that same way. Just bold-faced lie. And it's nothing that he can say I didn't know about some testing. That was his lie he confronted Murdoch with. So then he just gave it to the grand jury to insinuate that not only, hey, you got blood on the shirt, there's a pattern here of the way they load these shotguns. Sure, we don't have the gun, but here's the inference you can draw, which is that it's obviously his the way he loads these guns. This is almost like his calling card, his MO. And I would be very surprised and disappointed if we did not hear that massively from Jim Griffin tomorrow. I mean, you, you don't want a four hour closing like Waters, but God, if you gotta put a to talk about, that is on your, that's finger number two. <laughs> so, Middle finger. Yeah. <laughs> Something that's also interesting when I was on the stand, he mentioned, and now I think he got David Owens confused with someone else at the time, but he ironically mentioned that why he 
wasn't so forthcoming about being at the dog kennels that night was because he was familiar with a David Owens that had been known for lying to grand juries to try to get a certain conviction. And I guess it turns out to have not been the same person, but I do find that to be ironic. A different sled agent. A different sled agent. He didn't feel he could trust. He didn't trust those uh, David sled agents. Yeah. Um, Okay, speaking a little bit more about the jury, walk us through, so the jury selects a foreman, and in this case it is a four lady. Um, Talk us through, like, that process, what that's going to look like in the deliberation. Well, actually, Cliff Newman selected the four person. Oh, okay. Um, That's his practice. Some of the jurors... Um, like to do it themselves. Okay. Uh, but Cliff was the one that said, you're going to be the four person. He did that in trial we had with him recently. He just kind of, it's usually the person sitting front row on the right. Right. Okay. And I, who knows why he does that. But that's, Are they allowed to decline? No one that, uh, no one has. Uh, okay. I've never seen it. But so like, he just picks his fave. <laughs> he usually picks the, the person that situates themselves front and to the right. Okay. It's not right out the it's gate. It's so interesting. But it's like after a witness or so, he'll let them settle back in into a routine of who is sitting in front on the right. And they go, all right, well, you are the four. But it's interesting. The person, the juror that sits front to the right is also closest to the witness box. And I just wonder if Judge Newman's practice over the years has been, I'll make that person the four person because they are volunteer. It's like sitting on the first row in a teacher's class like you're you're paying attention there's nowhere to hide that kind of thing i just wonder if that plays into it but he always pretty much does the person that kind of finds himself in that position um and that person once you're deliberating isn't given any additional weight the only responsibility they're giving is to like tally votes and then like write it on the verdict form Mm -hmm. guilty the not guilty if there's a question to write a question, so yeah, they're, they're like not request inf- right. Like kind they're of not the from- boss of the jury. Now, <laughs> it's interesting though that I sometimes wonder whether they they might believe they have a little more weight, um, or whether the jury might think they have a little more say just because they have been given that role. I doubt it, but you never know what goes on back there. I mean, there's all kinds of horse trading dynamics, wild stuff, fighting. Okay, and- let's talk about that. I mean, we... Horse trading? What? Yeah. Compromises. Okay, okay. Like, literally compromises to get out of there to... I mean, you're going to have people with different minds. They're trying to do the best they can to come to a unanimous verdict. It's very hard, you know... And if I'm doing a death case, I just want one person to have doubt... And I encourage them to raise their hand and go, you know what? My duty is to deliberate, but my duty is not to bend to your will. Yeah. And so as long right. as I've considered the evidence, raise my hand, knock on that door and say, bailiff, we're done. And that, and you want that kind of, that gets you a life sentence and not a death sentence and, and a death case. But in this case, you know, that's when that's why we try to empower our jurors to rise above, but stick to their guns. Yes, you have to have a unanimous decision to reach a verdict, but you don't have to reach a verdict. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> We're all, I mean, I guarantee you Alex Murdoch is perfectly happy with a hung jury. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, they, we know just from doing the trials, trying to speak to jurors afterwards, 
they talk about some of the compromises that they make and we know sometimes they'll split a verdict in a bizarre way um, where you know they just kind of threw in the towel and made a compromise and gave some faction let's say a conviction but you know, well, it, that is a hundred percent why Jim Griffin after Alex Murdoch confessed to all the financial crimes uh, said, and you've been charged with all these things that you just admitted to, right? And those are pending criminal charges against you? Yes, sir. And that forecasts the jury that he's never going to go home. And that is what we call, I've talked about it before in some of these other lives, that's jury nullification where you're trying to say, listen, even if you believe there's enough evidence, if some of you don't, that's, that'll be them horse trading in the back going, listen, guys, you know, we can cut this guy a break if we find there's reasonable doubt, even in light of all the international scrutiny, because guess what? He's not going anywhere. We don't have to feel the pressure that this is like, if we don't convict him, he's going to go home and sleep in his bed at night. That's not going to happen. So like, that's exactly why Jim Griffin did it. Normally you're not allowed to do that, but the state had brought in those financial crimes for their motive. And so it allows Jim Griffin to raise them as another way for for his client to go to prison. So you don't have to convict here because he's going to SCDC, the South Carolina uh, Correctional Department, over here in a matter of time. And that that was pretty savvy on Jim Griffin's part. Um, so. Yeah, someone's saying here, um, I could not send someone away for life for something I'm not absolutely sure about. Can we talk about... Uh, without any reason of doubt what what that really means in South Carolina uh, whoever that person is I'd like them in my next journey <laughs> uh, but yeah that's what you that's really what you want is someone who you're not gonna convict return a verdict of guilty unless you're convinced beyond a reasonable doubt I would tell that person if you have a doubt and I know you're reasonable then you cannot, under our law, convict. Um, so it has to be in the jury, and you heard from Creighton Waters, you know, I think he had some of the law up there in a PowerPoint, it might say something like, you know, proof beyond any all possible doubt is not, uh, is not required, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. So right, like, did the Mona Lisa. Right, right, <laughs> and that was kind of cheesy, but I got the point he was trying but, to make. I mean, it could be effective, I think, you know, any, any demonstrative like that right. is important for a jury. But that is the standard. It, it, even if you hate this man and you know he stole from a Tony Satterfield his entire you know, wrongful death settlement for his mother, who was a longtime employee, you hate him for that. Mm -hmm. You have to sit there and go, all right, I hate him, but have they proven this? And I don't want my hate to establish proof. That's what a jury has to do if they're doing their job the right way. That's what Jim Griffin has to hopefully convince them to do, whereas Creighton Waters is trying to blend that all together and let your, let your hate be your proof, let it establish she's a bad human, bad humans lie, bad humans kill for no good reason. Please convict. So that's, that's the battle. That is the battle, and I, we've seen a few jurors have blankets over their head, maybe put tissues in their ears, some maybe even falling asleep. <laughs> what what uh, do you guys think about that? I've heard 
tissues and ears and blankets over heads. That is not good. Yeah, that's, uh, and then like, can they not be reprimanded? Like, can Judge Newman not I would be, be like, Hello? very surprised. Maybe that's when Newman was deciding to take a certain break. He seemed to take them. And I know that he likes to do a morning break, you get your lunch break, an afternoon, but if he's like, let's all stand kind of randomly, <laughs> it may literally be to force a juror to, to stand up and get the blanket. I don't think he wants to humiliate a juror in front of an international audience. I think if, it would, if there's no cameras, he might be a little more direct about it, but that's not a good sign. It means either somebody has bored that jury juror to tears and they're not listening, which is not what you want for either side, or they made up their mind a long time ago, which is not what you want for probably either side. In this case, maybe you want that if you're the state because you had so much other crime evidence. I have not seen that before on my jury. <laughs> yes, yeah, but not, say, not on our jury. What's the craziest thing you've seen happen on your juries? <sighs> well, we we had, you know, you, you have in South Carolina, you don't get what they call like extensive voir dire. A lot of states, you get to ask a thousand questions to a prospective juror to really kind of get to know them before you see them. In South Carolina, you don't. You get to know like where they live, uh, you know, what do they do for a living? What does their spouse do for a living? And some general questions. So these are strangers that you're sitting on your, on your jury. And we've had, you know, jurors come up with like personal knowledge of a victim and say like I know that person happened through a trial. Um, it I wasn't think we had a love connection on a jury one time. Well, oh, in a in a trial. <laughs> well, I'm not talking about what you're talking about. I'm right. talking about you can talk about that. But I'm, <laughs> but I'm thinking in that Edgeville case, I feel like this young man and woman kind of coupled up, and like we could see them like holding hands. <laughs> You know, by the end of it, like as they walk to and from. Yes, we did see that. And we were yes. like, oh, interesting. So, like, you didn't waste your time back there, I guess. <laughs> um, I wonder if they came to the same conclusion. And then you tell your story. So, Luke and I mostly try our cases together, but there. Oh, this was a case. This was my story, actually. There, there, I once had a murder case. Yeah. Where one of Brian's ex-girlfriends was in the jury pool, <laughs> <laughs> and the prosecutor learned about it. And came up and was like, is that one of Brian's ex-girlfriends? I'm hearing that. I'm like, yeah. And I was like, I kind of inferred it was a bad breakup. I was like, yeah, you know, it was, yeah. And so she sat this juror thinking that revenge deliberation. That this woman would not like to look at my face as we're identical twins. And I knew her a little bit. That breakup was great. It was very right. amicable. Like, it was and, uh, so it didn't exactly work the way the... Um, the prosecutor wanted, but I was interesting staring at your ex-girlfriend throughout that murder trial. We just think about jur <laughs> jurors. I once had a jury trial with Cliff Newman, um, where my client decided it would be. We picked a jury with him present, and then right when we were getting ready to do opening statements, and I was trying this case with this really good friend, lawyer of mine. Um, she no longer really is a trial lawyer anymore, but she was getting ready to do her opening. And my client, he was a smoker, and he was out on the smoke break, and he was not coming back. And I went outside of the courthouse, and he was, he saw me looking at him, and he started running. And he said, don't follow me, Shimi, Shimi, don't follow me, don't follow me. And he was fast. I was not going to catch this guy. <laughs> and so we got up there, and we did the whole case without him. 
And under our, our laws, you know, you don't you have a Fifth Amendment right to remain silent, so like you don't even have to be present. And so actually, Cliff Newman had to give a jury instruction that said you cannot consider the fact that he's not present as any evidence against him. Everyone's got the same rights of presumption of innocence and right to uh, remain silent. You can't consider that. But when he was running out of the courthouse, he managed to pass a juror that was coming in from the break and he said something like, pray for me. And so that j juror reported it to Judge Newman. And so, so we did this case and we got a not guilty, even with our client not there. And we even said like, you know, he had someplace to be in a hurry. And so basically we, we won the case and right when they were rendering the verdict of not guilty, they just picked this guy up on the bench warrant and so he has got he got brought back into the courtroom from underneath the courthouse where the holding cell is in handcuffs he got brought back propped beside us for the reading of the acquittal and he was all happy but then judge newman based on what he was hearing from the juror that said you know he said pray for me had a whole separate hearing on whether our client was intimidating jurors and was tampering with the jury and we i recall we had a two-day hearing after that about whether our client was going to be found uh, criminally responsible for juror intimidation and our guy got up on the stand so like we were exhausted because we just won this case we were stressed out because our client wasn't there it, we win the case and then we're having a two-day hearing on that and the, and the jurors after they got, they got done deliberating had to go testify about what they observed and that was wild and so Ultimately, Judge Newman found that there, he didn't find any violations. He didn't find that the witness tampering was actually witness tampering. It was nothing. And our guy ultimately walked out. But like, he made it so much harder on himself. So that, a little bit of an interesting jury experience uh, in front of our judge, Cliff Newman, here. Yeah. And yes, it was breaking news. Um, these guys are identical twins. Um, eight, Brian, eight minutes older, right here. Brian is eight minutes older. Um, they, we have a lot of comments about the matching shoes today. Oh. Do you guys ever share shoes, swap shoes, or the same shoe size? No. I oh. Think his foot so it's not that identical? It's just random. We, I mean, we have, this happened to be kind of the walnut color shoe today, but mm -hmm. not intentional. Yeah. Unintentional matching. Identical twins. Brian has the beard. Mm -hmm. uh, we have one judge always refers to... Him is the good Sheely and me is the bad Sheely. Um, and it has something to do with the motion I made to exhume the body of a baby one time. And that name kind of stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Long story. That'll be covered on another episode <laughs> of the uh, Bring the Jury podcast. Um, so, also, so a lot going on with the jury, a lot going on with the audience, too, throughout this trial. And people are even showing up as early as I've heard, 4.30 a.m. Like, get a good seat to watch, watch everything unfold. Can you all kind of talk about that? Maybe what you witnessed? I know there were some things happening with Buster, other, other audience members. It's a real who's who. I mean... <laughs> We know so many people in that courtroom, other attorneys that are interested and they go down there and even some lawyers that are involved in some of these civil cases representing the victims of these financial crimes are there. 
and you know they're being thrown on uh, network television as kind of consultants and it's just it is a circus um but yeah everyone wants to be able to say they were in the courtroom one of these weeks to be able to see this trial i missed the biggest trial in south carolina in a long time that we've had um right especially non-death penalty trial right and, so. and you got law students and middle school students on field trips and just gawkers onlookers um, and it's a relatively small courtroom so it's just wild um, and Hannah we we're gonna have to get back on air here in a little bit and I've got to like get a sip of water or something so maybe like one last question or something one last question um, people want to know what's your zodiac sign <laughs> I don't even I think that's a good one to end on so our our shared birthday is September 24th um, so someone's gonna have to look that up. I think it's a Virgo. I think we're Libras. No, you're not a Libra. We're not? Wait, oh, Libra, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah definitely Libra. I forget. There's like a little cutoff right around there. I, think, I feel like we're close to the cutoff, so I'm not. We're Libra. What does that mean? I'm pretty sure, too, that the Libra, like, symbol is like the balance symbol that you see, like, to represent like, the law. So that's. And our, the law office that we bought Sorry a, few, if I'm wrong. a few years ago is very historic. It's 1835 building. And it comes with these very cool signposts out front that has these twin sphinxes that are iron casts. It's, it's amazing. And uh, we didn't it was, even realize it. was it. all like dilapidated and, and covered in paint and wood. And we had this brilliant artist handyman, shout out to Mike, who like totally redid it and brought out this cast iron sphinxes and sphinxes are supposed to be like protectors and things like that so we love we love that um, please don't come visit us there but um <laughs> you know libras sphinxes twins libras sphinxes twins uh yes always justice for bubba always um bubba, bubba forever no do not know alex murdoch personally um but yeah always hashtag justice for bubba catch you all next time if you want more from luke and brian they will be going live on wltx uh you can catch them on youtube for their after hours with jr who you all saw at the beginning of this episode with the great socks the episode uh of bring the jury bring the jury bring this is episode jury. eight of bring the jury bye everyone have a great evening